Welcome to Beyond Aesthetics, a podcast about art and design from the Fountain Institute. In this podcast, we explore how to think like an artist and how to think like a designer. Today, we're going to really dive into why we titled this podcast Beyond Aesthetics. Art and design both share the stigma that we're all about the way something looks. But if you're an artist or designer or artist slash designer, you know there's much more than just the aesthetics. Not that we ignore the aesthetics, but we go beyond. Here at the Fountain Institute, our vision is a world that seeks designers for the way that they think and not just what they produce. This sentiment is very familiar. This is also what artists wanted to do over 100 years ago, which is actually the inspiration for the Fountain Institute's name. The Fountain, an artwork that asked society to rethink what it meant to be an artist, to move away from requiring the artist's hand to create the object and towards the artist creating the concept. So you'll hear more content like this on the podcast in the future of how art and design are similar and what we can learn from one another. So to kick this off, we have a two-part series with Margaret Hall, professor at Wayne State College in Detroit, Michigan, who describes herself as straddling the worlds of art and design. In part one, you'll hear about feedback and critiques and the importance of knowing your audience. So let's get started. So just tell us first, who are you and what do you do? And then, yeah, we kind of, everyone has like a weird career path. Like everyone always thinks how they got to where they are is like strange. And so we kind of just like to hear about that. Yeah. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here today and speak with you. It's really wonderful to get to talk a little bit more about my practice and experience and to just have a really wonderful conversation with you. So my name is Margaret Hull. I use she, her pronouns, and I am currently based in Detroit, Michigan, what is now known as Detroit, Michigan, specifically Bangladesh, which is a neighborhood nor- in North Detroit, just north of Hamtramck, and I, I, where I live, and I have my studio here. So I am an artist who also engages in design, and I am a, an instructor at Wayne State University. I teach in the Fashion Design and Merchandising Program. There I'm assistant professor and area coordinator of the, the program. So I teach fashion design courses, beginning to advance courses in garment construction, as well as textiles and specifically textile materials and their application in the fashion industry. I also teach professional practices, so I work with students who are about to graduate and are thinking about what their careers could look like and and how can they actually identify their values and how to best present themselves when they leave college. So how I got to this place, I studied in college fiber. So I went to MICA in Baltimore and had the opportunity to learn not only textile techniques and very process-based work, but also concepts and theories related to fiber. And I do feel fortunate that I had a, a pretty comprehensive balance of both, I would say. So, you know, I was learning processes like weaving, dyeing, silk screening, but then also talking about meaning and material and the importance of understanding context in relationship to textiles. And, you know, we very much touched on textiles relationship to political movements and understanding how gender and feminist theory plays a role in contemporary textile art and fiber art. And that program allowed for 
multidisciplinary work still rooted in the foundations of fiber. So alongside my education in textiles, I took courses in, in feminist theory and gender studies and had the opportunity to also pursue interests that were maybe indirectly, in some cases directly, informing my studio work. So I took courses in sustainability and environmental ethics, and I still think a lot about what I absorbed from those experiences and the conversations that we had in those those classes. So, so I graduated with a BFA in fiber, and then while I was studying at MICA, I was involved in community arts partnerships and worked in the city of Baltimore in um, a variety of community centers, working on engagement projects with women and children who were experiencing homelessness or who were living in shelters or were otherwise had fragile living situations. And so I was working with them on some fiber-based projects, embroidery specifically. So that work was really important to me to get outside of my own academic experience in Baltimore and to understand the city a little bit more. And that inspired the work that I did after graduation, which was working in adult basic education, which was not creative in the way that my work had been up until that point. It was it was a really challenging experience to, sh- to make that shift, but to also understand the necessity of populations in New Orleans specifically, I moved to New Orleans after graduating, that were still feeling the effects of of Hurricane Katrina. So not necessarily in terms of their physical environments, the effects of Katrina, but I became aware of inequities that persisted, you know, that existed before Katrina and that persisted due to Katrina or after Katrina. So I was, again, working in adult basic education and making art at the same time. And as I got to know more about the city of New Orleans, I was able to meet other artists and really build a strong community there. And that started to feed my practice in a way that I really needed after graduating. I think after finishing undergrad, I I didn't know fully what I wanted to do or who I wanted to be or how I identified in my creative and professional role. And it helped me to to be away from, from school and to first teach adult basic education, but also I started working in an after-school program teaching art in New Orleans. So I was able to start teaching, working in a K through 12 environment and have a studio practice at the same time. I started showing more and, and eventually I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school to focus on my practice and to develop more critical engagement with a community of other artists and designers and while I was able to initiate this in when I was living in New Orleans, I started a critique, critique group that met on a monthly basis. And it was a really wonderful way to have important conversations about work of artists in New Orleans and to get feedback. I moved to Michigan in 2014 to go to Cranbrook Academy of Art. This program specifically attracted me because of the intensive critique environment. So it's a studio-based program, there are no courses, but there is a lot of communication between the different disciplines and it's very encouraging of multidisciplinary work. Yeah, so now you're over 
uh, Wayne State, correct? And yeah. you're not adjunct anymore? <laughs> I'm not adjunct anymore. So I... <laughs> Yay! Uh, yeah. <laughs> Huge yes. in the teaching in the higher ed teaching world. Oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah. So I, yeah, I teach. Yeah, you're still teaching in the kind of fibers, material, culture world at another university in Detroit. Correct. Yeah, I teach in fashion design, as I mentioned, which you know my area works really closely with the fibers area at Wayne State, and because obviously the, these two areas are very much intertwined. And I was excited to come into this to be offered this position to come with my fiber experience and my knowledge of textiles and especially my interests in sustainability and understanding where materials come from and how a student can make intentional choices that contribute to the conceptual, their conceptual ideas for their work. So I bring that textile experience to the position, as well as a a focus on conceptual development and encouraging students to use the technical skills that they have and to grow their technical skills, but at the same time, developing critical language and understanding of the work that they're making and what effect they want it to have in the world. One of the things, like when you were talking about when you were in New Orleans and and one of the things that you kind of missed or craved or wanted was the sense of like community and being surrounded by artists and being able to talk about it and critique and all these things. And I remember like feeling the same thing. And I remember we used to talk about that and like with our other college friends from Micah being like, God, I didn't take advantage or realize like what, how amazing that was where like every day you're surrounded by somebody or not just somebody, but like a whole community of people are all willing to talk about your ideas and talk about this like process and like, and what, and like help you work through it. How that part was so important yes. that I didn't even like realize. And like, I remember everyone I talked to was craving that afterwards. Yeah. And then, I, and then I thought it was like really interesting too, about I like how you're saying like, that was something that really drew you to Cranbrook also critiquing process or like or the community like the aspect of it yes yeah definitely I remember having those conversations with you and I like I said you know I with friends and peers that I had formed relationships with in New Orleans we we were feeling that too I think it's a common it's very common that all all people need community to varying degrees that artists and designers especially it's it's how we understand best practices it's how we can relate to other people and so my friend group in in New Orleans we started this the series that allowed us to have more formal conversations i mean sometimes we're inviting guests in and we didn't necessarily know them but we all were there because we had a similar goal which is that we wanted to present our work and get constructive feedback, you know, positive and negative and all framed as, you know, we're trying to make the work better. We're trying to understand how other people interpret it and to grow it, you know, and and to really to have that focused environment in which we could feel comfortable having those in, in, in depth conversations. So yes, I was able to fulfill that partly when I was outside of an academic environment, but I knew that I that going to grad school was the right choice for me if I wanted to be able to focus on my work and not necessarily have outside commitments and outside work for a, a two-year period of time. And so Cranbrook, being a studio environment, there 
everyone is in the studio for long periods of time. And yeah, they're, they're available to you. I mean, I think this varies, but I felt very fortunate that in my particular program and in my area, we, all of my cohort, we got along for the most part and we were able to, to be there for each other. And, and this is not only in regard to our creative practices and our research, but also just personally, I think that was hugely important because grad school is a, a stressful environment. There's a lot of pressure on you and you put pressure on yourself. And so it's so, so important to be able to offer yourself to other people, but then also be able to receive that, receive feedback and receive criticism. And so I, I do, it's something that I talk to my students about today is the importance of, you know, if you want to call it a network, if whatever you want to call it, a community, if that word suits you better, being able to cultivate that is crucial to survival. <laughs> I think emotional, professional, and whether or not you separate those two, that's okay too. But but having having a community is what makes you will make you thrive. Yeah, and I think I think with what's happening in the world today, I think everyone's really feeling that like a lot more so. But I think there is yes, I think it's an essential thing, and we crave it a lot. But I think even before the pandemic, it was something that you we would hear a lot in the design world as well, because so many times it's like a design team of one or they're siloed off into their own area. And there's so much of that creative process happening that you have to get out of your head and you have to speak out loud or show to somebody else to see how they're perceiving it. Yeah, and I I love how you said like feedback is a two, or you maybe didn't say this, but I said (laughs) feedback is a two-way street, which is something I present in our classes actually. And because we talk about how, you know, you, you do have to think about feedback or critique or whatever word you want to put on it is is something that you can get better at from both perspectives. Like you can get better at receiving it and you can also get better at giving it and you can be active in both of those scenarios. Just because you're receiving feedback doesn't mean you're passive. Yes. And there's ways to construct the type of, not the type of feedback, but like, is it like, what is it that you want feedback on? Or like, what is it that you're looking to get out of this when I'm presenting it? With the designers, a lot of times I'm like, are you interested in the aesthetic part of feedback? Or do you want to know about the concept? Or are you interested in the research? Like, what is it that you're looking to get feedback on about this project too? And so, and you were mentioning, so you like, this is something that you talk about and, and teach with your students. Yeah, I was just going to add that I try as much as possible to give, to develop and present a framework for critique, but that also gives students as much agency as possible to determine how they want to direct critique. I think this can be a challenge because some students don't necessarily know what they want. They, but my, I feel it's my job to encourage them to think about, to at least ask questions, ask questions of themselves and ask questions of their peers in order to determine what direction they want the work to go in. So we use the elements and principles of design. We look at the elements and principles of design as a foundation. And so they would have learned those foundational tenets, you know, earlier in their educational experiences, but 
it's important for me to continue to connect those to what they're learning in in later courses. So we use typically the Feldman method, which has been adapted and you know used by various various programs, various approaches, has been kind of remade. But basically it involves looking at the work, so taking in and describing the work. And then analyzing the work. So being able to make connections between elements and principles of design. So how are, how, how's the form contributing to other aspects or how are, how are elements like balance and symmetry working together when we're looking at a design work? And then moving on to judgment. So how, What's the artist's intention behind the work? Oh my gosh, I'm totally getting these out of order. It's description. It's okay. Description, analysis. Analysis, interpretation, judgment. Ah, thank you. Okay. It's okay. I only know this because I've created a lot of material around it. So, <laughs> Okay. So interpretation, you know, what is the artist's intention, artist or designer's intention behind the work? And then judgment, is the work successful? Why or why not? And it can be very hard to get students to stick to this framework. You know, they want to just respond to the work and say that they like it or they don't like it. And what I try to encourage them to do is to, you know, move beyond that. Why don't you like it? Um, and so developing that critical language is takes work. I mean, it takes effort even for people who have been doing critique for a while and, and who understand it. So, but what I think that that process does is it hopefully makes the the critique environment more equitable because we are we're stating what we see and we don't all see the same thing based on our own experience and cultural background and and so it's important for everyone in the group to understand what their peers are seeing so if you see the color blue but someone else sees the color green you know that we need to we need to acknowledge that and it should be in the room and and made verbal verbalized. So I, it's something, yeah, that we're constantly working on is, and also honestly, in the pandemic, we're, I've been teaching over Zoom and critique is very different this way. I've tried to still follow the same framework, but introduce, you know, breakout rooms. Students are much more engaged in my experience, when they're divided into smaller groups, so even pairs or groups of three, and they can have dialogue with each other and then come back to the to the group to share how to share how their discussion went and share any anecdotes. So so yeah, back to my earlier statement, trying to find a balance between giving students direction, but also allowing them agency to guide the discussion is really important. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, I remember I actually came to you probably like a year or more so ago because I was thinking, I'm like, how do you teach critique? <laughs> it's like, I remember doing it all the time at, in undergrad to the point where it's like, it just was like ingrained and like different professors had kind of different styles or, you know, sometimes you weren't allowed to say anything when you put your work up and then you just had to listen at first, or sometimes you were able to say something or, you know, sometimes people had to write things down before they, everyone had to write stuff down before they would actually communicate something. And so, yeah, it was just like interesting to think about like how you teach it or how I learned it and like how to like teach it too. But then also by doing that, also thinking about how imperative that process is to furthering the concept or idea that you're trying to communicate. 
Yes. Um, yeah. Because also it's all about how it's perceived by somebody else. I mean, not yeah. all, but so much of it is, you know, how am I being able to communicate this idea through this object or through this form of some sort? And I'm trying to communicate something. I want you to get something, some idea out of it. And now I have to kind of see what a variety of people interact with that and how they, or how they interact with it and how they interpret it. And that gives me an idea of, you know, how to move forward. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Understanding how your intention, if your intention was received in the way that you wanted it to be, if if people got it or were able to pinpoint specific references that you made, all of that is is so informative in, in understanding how your work is operating. And if it is successful by whatever measures you deem, you know, whatever, however you're evaluating success in the work. I think it could be easily said, you know, like, well, we're making things is self-satisfying. We, those of us who make feel compelled to do so and have an innate desire to work with our hands or work with digital tools. But then presumably we want people to see them. We want to put them out in the world. We want them be, to be worn or used or observed. And so there, it has to ultimately be a conversation around what that work is doing what could it be doing better in order to fully communicate in the way that you intend? Just thinking about how this relates to fashion design, a conversation that I had with students early on when I started teaching in this program is, you know, and still continue to have it is who are you designing for? Just thinking about how this relates to fashion design, a conversation that I had with students early on when I started teaching in this program is, you know, and still continue to have it is who are you designing for? You know, in, in my own experience making garments, I tend to use my body because not only because I was working in performance for video for a while. And so I was physically performing, but my body is always available to me. So I could easily try on a garment, make alterations. And it was a a very much like a back and forth process. And of course the same could be done with a dress form, but it's not, it's not the same as a human body. So, you know, a lot of my students, some of them make garments that they want to wear. And so they fulfill a specific need. And of course they want, they want other people to want those objects. They want them and works of design. They want them to be saleable and marketable. So back to this conversation around who are you designing for that, that does produce some challenges for young designers because they have an aesthetic that they want to develop and that they should develop, but they also might need out of necessity to think about who is going to buy this, you know, who will wear this. It's, it has to serve a practical need, presumably, right? It's clothing the body. And so it, it, there are obviously varying degrees of wearability and some students want to make garments that are more wearable, like I said, saleable. And others are interested in more avant-garde pieces and that don't necessarily fit within the realm of everyday dress. So it's a really important conversation, I think, for fashion design students to have and to have with themselves and to have with their peers when they're considering, you know, what they want to do with their work once they graduate. Yeah. Do you think that when you start to have these conversations with them about who are you designing for, what is their reaction to that question? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I, I think it's really like plenty of my students look 
um, are active on social media. And so they're looking at influencers and they're looking at how garments are promoted in online spaces, especially. I mean, we look at well-known designers, we look at runway, we look at how the work is, is, is presented and how designers build their own aesthetics. And so I think that question, some of them can answer it really easily because they, and whether that's because they have, um, they've been making for longer, they're more confident in their skills as a designer, or if it's just something that they like have, having absorbed a lot of material culture online, they've like, they just have a sense of like who their customer is, um, if they're thinking about it in, in a monetary capacity or capitalist capacity. So I, I think for the most part, students, it takes time. I don't know. It's not something that for the, for the majority of students, I would say it's not something that they can immediately answer, which is okay, especially if they're just starting out. And I think it can evolve as well. It's not something that they need to know right away, but it is an important question to ask because it's it's a broad question. It's it's not only, you know, the question of who, it's what gender, what race, what size, or what ability. You know, how do you think about dressing people more generally? and who you want to dress. It could also be thought of as like, what what audience do you want to have engagement with? And maybe it might be easier for them to associate with another group of people that more clearly represents themselves. So maybe they say, you know, I want to make clothes for people that look like me. Or I think that's, I would say that's more often the case. Mm We will continue this conversation with Margaret Hall in our next episode. If you'd like to find out more about Margaret's work, you can go to her website at margarethall.com. M-A-R-G-A-R-E-T-H-U-L-L.com. Next time, we'll go more into how research plays a role into the artistic praxis and how art is a pedagogy. Or is it? Thanks again for listening. I'd also like to thank Tobias Humble for the music you heard in this episode. If you have any topics that you would like us to explore more, please reach out to us at hello at thefountaininstitute.com. We also produce a weekly newsletter on design education, also called Beyond Aesthetics. Sign up, you can go to our website at thefountaininstitute.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe or write a review. I'm Hannah Baker, and this is Beyond Aesthetics.